0: on local now channel
1: 525 back tuesday november 22nd 2022 i was talking to an old and respected scholar this morning who was asking me if things to me like to him just seem not quite right in this country there's a lot of angst even a bit of a palpable depression going into the holidays also as I mentioned briefly yesterday, a journalist who is doing a profile of me asked me about the new American fascination with race and my fascination with the fascination of it. It was a winding conversation, but I was reminded and spoke, and this will all come together in a moment, I was reminded and spoke of that speech United States Senator Barack Obama delivered at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Alabama in 2007. This is the speech where Obama spoke of the civil rights work left for his, our, what he called the Joshua generation. Here's how he put it, I'm quoting Barack Obama from 2007, before he was the president. Quote, Don't tell me I'm not coming home when I come to Selma, Alabama. I'm here because somebody marched for our freedom. I'm here because you all sacrificed for me. I stand on the shoulders of giants and I thank the Moses generation. But we have got to remember now that Joshua still had a job to do. As great as Moses was, despite all that he did leading a people out of bondage, he didn't cross over the river to see the promised land. God told him, your job is done. You'll see it. You'll be at the mountaintop and you can see what I've promised, what I promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And I promised to you, you can see that I will fulfill that promise, but you won't go there. We're going to leave it to the Joshua generation to make sure. It happens. There's still some battles that need to be fought, some rivers that need to be crossed, Obama continued. Like Moses, the task was passed on to those who might not have been as deserving, might not have been as courageous, find themselves in front of the risks that their parents and their grandparents and great-grandparents had taken. But that doesn't mean they still don't have a burden that they have to shoulder, that they don't have some responsibilities the previous generation, the Moses generation pointed the way here's the key part obama said they took us 90 percent of the way there but we still got that 10 percent in order to cross over to the other side close quote the point was a point i learned from larry elder don't you think then subsequently electing twice the country's first african-american president would have cut substantially into that 10% who knows 3 to 8 more percent we only had 10% more to go that was before we elected a black president twice electing a black president twice had to have taken us down from 10% left to just maybe 1 or 2 or 3% left don't you think and yet after all that And Obama and Holder and the rest of everything we've accomplished on racial equality and success, we seem more racialized and racially divided than ever. We spoke some on this, and I was thinking about two things, history and narcissism. Before I get to that, perhaps part of the regnant problem is what people do not cite or quote or have forgotten from that same speech of Barack Obama's in 2007. I reread the entire thing this morning, and it opens with praise and thanks to Jeremiah Wright from Barack Obama. He who saw no redemption in or for America. Anyway, history and narcissism. Narcissism comes from the Greek narcissus, who was a hunter so enamored with himself, he rejected all other relationships to admire himself full time until he died. In modern, modern psychology, narcissism represents a personality disorder of the constant need for ap- admiration and a lack of empathy for others. We might call it extreme selfishness. In politics, we might say the me or the I is more important than the community we live in or want to protect or enhance, more important than the collective group of Americans. I have, as it turns out, been thinking more and more about this. And I've gone back to read some essays on this, like The Me Decade by Tom Wolfe and The Culture of Narcissism by Christopher Lash, a book that was a huge bestseller at the end of the 1970s and that I just heard Adam Carolla speaking about last week. Anyway, to our political moment in all this, we do seem more divided than ever. Add that to the growing tote board of things that make little sense or could not have been predicted in the most economically successful moment in country and country in history, with the most technological advancement giving us access to unending wisdom, not just in our homes and classrooms but in the palms of our hands, we are not with all this money and advancement in technology and education and learning at our fingertips, we are not only reducing our lifespan longevity, something unheard of in an economically advanced society, but we have been reducing life expectancy for several years in a row now here. We are also more drug-addled and poisoned than ever. We are more mentally unstable than ever, and our education scores are in decline rather than incline. Let's add more racially divided and more politically divided to the list as well. What causes all this? On the latter parts, in race and politics, I believe it is symptomatic of the permanent revolution adopted by neo-Marxism, which depends upon and thrives on paranoia and frenzy. The permanent revolution is a Marxist doctrine. But something else is at play, isn't it? Classic symptoms of the culture of narcissism, which, as Professor Lash puts it, respects neither the past nor the future, nothing greater than ourselves and our immediate self-interests. That's the entire Warp and woof, a vision, nothing to look back, nothing to look forward to, just the present and the I, the me. You've heard me lament the distortion and neglect of teaching history, especially American history, and that's a big part or contributor to it. As Christopher Lash writes, quote, I see the past as a political and psychological treasury from which we draw the reserves that we need to cope with the future. Our culture's indifference to the past, which easily shades over into active hostility and rejection, furnishes the most telling proof of that culture's bankruptcy. The prevailing attitude, so cheerful and forward-looking on the surface, derives from a narcissistic improvement of the psyche and also from an inability to ground our needs in the experience of satisfaction and contentment. Instead of drawing on our own experience, we allow experts to define our needs for us and then wonder why those needs never seem to be satisfied. He concluded, For all these reasons, the devaluation of the past has become one of the most important symptoms of the cultural crisis to which we must address ourselves, often drawing on historical experience to explain what is wrong with our present arrangements. A denial of the past, he says, specifically progressive and optimistic, proves on closer analysis to embody the despair of a society that cannot face the future. It's powerful, isn't it? There's a lot to unpack there. This helps, where he writes, quote, "...the despairing view of the future is now widely shared by those who govern society, shape public opinion, and supervise the scientific knowledge on which society depends." If, on the other hand, we ask what the common man thinks about his prospects, we find plenty of evidence to confirm the impression that the modern world faces the future without hope, but we also find another side of the picture which qualifies that impression and suggests that Western civilization may yet generate the moral resources to transcend its present crisis. A pervasive distrust of those in power has made society increasingly difficult to govern as the governing Class repeatedly complains without understanding its own contribution to the difficulty. But this same distrust may furnish the basis of a new capacity for self-government, which would end by doing away with the need that gives rise to a governing class in the first place. Close quote. He goes on, we have carried the logic of individualism to the extreme of a war of all against all the pursuit of happiness to the dead end of a narcissistic preoccupation with the self. Strategies of narcissistic survival now present themselves as emancipation from the repressive conditions of the past, thus giving rise to a cultural revolution that reproduces the worst features of the collapsing civilization it claims to criticize. Cultural radicalism has become so fashionable And so pernicious in the support it unwittingly provides for the status quo that any criticism of contemporary society that hopes to get beneath the surface has to criticize at the same time much of what currently goes under the name of radicalism. I think this is a perfect description of stories with regard to our enemy and anger over our politics, as well as our revivified occupation with race. We've perverted, let us say, as Christopher Lash does, the concept of the pursuit of happiness, which is a phrase appending our commitment to liberty and equality. We've, 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 we've perverted, to, perverted it to a sort of selfishness, and we've inherited the logic of ahistorical a knowledge and self-satisfaction into a war of all against all. Again... So very Marxist, pitting Americans against Americans. The stories of the Department of Defense committing themselves to diversity and inclusion in equity classes and indoctrination are no different than or from the stories in medical schools finding the need and import to medicalize racism or run medical students through coursework and lectures and classes on social justice. And those kinds of stories would have been unimaginable before Obama's presidency. They are routine and regular now. Again, we can never be contented. The permanent revolution must march on and all the while burying or revising history as it goes, so as to feed on itself. As Lash put it, our culture's indifference to the past, which easily shades over into active hostility and rejection furnishes the most telling proof of the culture's bankruptcy. The prevailing attitude, so cheerful and forward-looking on the surface, derives from a narcissistic impoverishment of the psyche and also from an inability to ground our needs in the experience of satisfaction and contentment. A denial of the past proves on closer analysis to embody the despair of a society that cannot face the future. We need to think on that, I think. Hannah Arendt, the philosopher, writes that totalitarianism can be traced to the perpetual motion mania of totalitarian movements, which can remain in power only so long as they keep moving and set everything around them in motion. Perpetual motion, mania, keep moving, frenzy, the crisis industrial complex, no rest. Recall that Marx, Karl Marx, in describing the need for what he called the permanent revolution, was used because there would be those derided as the petty bourgeoisie who thought things were pretty much okay. We're doing all right here. No need to royal the waters. That's why Marx thought we needed a permanent revolution and no rest. Those that thought the Joshua generation had nearly accomplished what was needed and also that society had developed with such an amazing access to knowledge and wisdom, well, that table cannot be set or settled. Not to the Marxists among us, even if they don't realize they're playing from the manifesto's handbook. Anyway, it's a thought. Maybe explaining some of that angst that old scholar was mentioning to me this morning. Consider... This week, Thanksgiving, after all, is the opposite—the diametric opposite—of self-serving narcissism. Might help explain the leftist attacks on it too. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, that's why things seem so incongruent just now. I'm Seth in six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. Be right back. If you're concerned uh, with the volatility of the stock market, why refi has an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market? It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like. No surprises. You can turn your monthly income on or off it, whatever you choose, and there's no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily. You're paid monthly. There are no fees. It's a secure, collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. How high? Up to ten point two five percent rate of return. That's right, ten and a quarter percent. Yrefi is a due diligence approved firm, and you can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, and refy.com, Or give them a call at eight 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 Yrefi thirty four. That's eight 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 Yrefi thirty four. I was mentioning in uh, the monologue above. Uh, the racialization of so many institutions and the conversion of the notion of equality into notions of diversity, inclusion, and equity. Um, Even, yes, as we talked about yesterday at our Department of Defense, but the medicalization of racism now, too, or the medicalization of racialism, I suppose. In the New York... uh, No, I'm sorry. In Fox News, at the Fox News website today, We have the report that the University of Florida College of Medicine is going down this road very quickly using equity initiatives to train a new generation of anti-racists in the medical fields. Those initiatives include active recruitment of underrepresented groups suggesting readings on diversity and equity for aspiring students and a code of ethics that explains how to address implicit Bias. This new report called Do No Harm says the College of Medicine is indoctrinating its its medical student, excuse me, its medical school graduates in divisive philosophies and other forms of social justice activism. At the same time, yes, in the New York Post, uh, Professor Dr. Stanley Goldfarb has a piece, Med Schools Are Even More Woke. Than you think, and your care is at risk. That's the quiet part that needs to be said out loud. We're not training doctors anymore to uh, operate, treat, diagnose, research. We're treating them to be sociology professors at Harvard. We're not treating military recruits and academies, military academy students about the importance of war and how to fight and how to defend. We're teaching them about what Marxism thinks of the United States when it comes to race. Just how woke is your nearest medical school? Dr. Goldfarb asks. The organization... um, that helps oversee medical schools thinks it's not woke enough. That's the Association of American Medical Colleges, and it re- issued a report last week of the ex- uh, which is the first ever on the extent to which diversity, equity, and inclusion and inclusion have infected the institutions training future physicians. One hundred and one medical schools were evaluated, asking for audits of their DEI related policies and programs, and the medical schools had to answer 89 yes or no questions on whether they have specific DEI activities. Schools that scored 80% got a certain color, 60% a different color, you get it. And what was found out is 6 out of 10 medical schools scored 80%. 80%. They are drenched in this stuff, drenched in it, drenched in not medicine drenched in left-wing neo-Marxist sociology. If we haven't killed off the medical field with all the regulations and Obamacare schemes by now, this ought to pretty much do it. A little later in the show, we'll talk to Dr. Zudi Jasser about all this. I'm Seth Leibson, 602 508 We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 past the hour, we get John Dombrowski from Grand Canyon Planning Associates with our Culture and Economy Update. He is the founder and president of Grand Canyon Planning. That is also uh, the website, grandcanyonplanning.com. Easy enough to remember. He also has his own radio show here every Saturday morning on 960, The Patriot, uh, The Word on Wealth. John, how are you, sir?
0: Fantastic. Love that song. You do right, yeah.
1: Is there a Sinatra song that we don't like? I know.
0: Yes, there is. There is. You know, and this is. Oh, my, you're going to get
1: unpopular. Quick. Oh, I know. Do I, it.
0: Should I? Yeah. I don't like um, his his actual you know main song, which is New York, uh, New York. No, that's my, that's way. You like my, my way. way. You don't like my don't way. You don't like don't like it. I mean, it's to me, it's a little too. There is a
1: depression to it. Yeah, there is. Yeah. There is a there is a sense of failure to it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I understand your point. Yeah, I understand it.
0: And you know, the very a very good year when I was seventeen. I yeah, that's ever, that's beautiful. that's another kind of depressing song. Yeah, you know. but, but it's you're beautiful. going through the phases of life, I it, guess it is. I it is.
1: know. <laughs> if you really want to see something special, this is a real culture segment yep. here. If you want to see something, <laughs> something special, go on to a video server, YouTube, or whatever you use. And look up his live recording of that in his studio. It was a very good year. It's Mm -hmm. really beautiful. I'm sure He shows up to the studio in a full suit and Mm -hmm. hat and tie, Mm -hmm. and the audience must have paid a lot of money to be there and It's a Mm -hmm. lot of fun.
0: I mean, the guy was a heck of a performer. I must say that. And what a voice. Yeah, what a voice. His uh, birthday's coming up pretty soon Mm -hmm. here, December 12th. December, yep. yep. All right. So we thought we had the
1: railroad (laughs) thing kind of solved, John.
0: Well, it was kind of a quick fix just prior to the— You know, the midterms uh, probably just tried to, you know, make sure nothing happened during the midterms so that uh, things would look good for uh, the president. But unfortunately, you don't say really politics, but this is something that's still here. And, you know, if the railroads, uh, if the unions do strike, um, this is something equivalent, I believe, to uh, when the uh, traffic controllers Mm -hmm. were trying to, Mm -hmm. you know, strike during the Reagan years. Yeah. And uh, he basically said, fine, you know. Uh, we're going to hire new ones. Uh, so I,
1: I don't think Joe Biden has that, though.
0: Well, the problem is yeah. is that people, you know, you can try to hire new people, but yeah. you know, no one wants to, you know, not no one, but a lot of people don't seem to want to, yeah. you know, apply for jobs. So
1: it's going to exacerbate so many problems, uh, including the diesel situation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the headline. Union Pacific CEO called to hearing in Washington as risk of rail. Strike rises. Uh, so when we think about the diesel problem, we think about high prices. We think mm-hmm. of supply chain problems. Sure, this is yeah. just about the last thing we want.
0: Yeah, and just as we're starting to see some easing in the inflationary, mm-hmm. uh, you know, signals that are out there, uh, this could throw a whole wrench into all of it. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, uh, the hearing that they're going to have, which they're going to question, you know, some of what they're using uh, a term embargoes mm-hmm. that maybe the railroads have been using. Uh, which has been creating some issues. Uh, they're going to question him about this, but the strike potentially goes into effect on December 9th, and the hearings are December 13th and 14th. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that makes sense. Right. So if this is really that important, it would make sense to push this ahead of the, the strike deadline yeah. and um, try to get things resolved prior to that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, it's hard to get my hands around the full complement of, of complaints that the uh, the unions have here, but it's clearly about uh, a lot of it having to do with working conditions. And I'm just wondering, you know, there is so much of this going on throughout these various industries, some unionized, mo- most not. But there's this quiet quitting thing we're going through. There's a work ethic thing we're going yeah. through. Uh Something tells me that if if we lose this one, it's going to have a domino effect,
0: John. I hope not, but uh, this could be a real challenge for the country, there's no question. And I do want to say one thing which is really amazing, Seth, with everything that has happened up to this point. The country is still moving forward we're still it's like
1: yeah we did a 400 point rise in the dow yeah right
0: the the u.s economy is still strong Uh, the u.s uh you know workforce is still producing i mean things are still happening out there which is amazing and that's the free enterprise right this is where companies in the u.s probably are the best in the world at this yeah uh and uh, we're going to overcome it uh but you know if something like this happens it's going to take a little bit longer it's another thing to deal with Um, it'll get dealt with, but unfortunately, it's out there, and I'm hoping that things can get settled before any type of uh, real strike goes into place.
1: Yeah, it's not going to be COVID that ruins the holidays. It'll be this kind of thing. But the
0: markets have somewhat have been settling in and the thought of a potential lower interest rate hike in December is good. is uh, is something that I think that the market's looking for. Good, 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 good. Hey, John, thank you, sir. You bet. Securities and advisory services offer to Creative One Securities LLC, member of recipient and investment advisor, Grant King and Plenty Associates LLC and Creative One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you, Seth. You betcha.
1: Bye-bye. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Seth Leibson's show, 602 508 Earlier in the hour, you might have heard an advertisement that Turning Point USA is uh, going to be doing its America Fest, uh, December 17th through 20th, here uh, at the uh, Phoenix Convention Center, this December 17th and 20th. Day event, uh, probably the largest celebration of our constitutional rights and freedoms that uh, Arizona will see. It's featuring the best and brightest speakers in the country, dozens of like-minded organizations, thousands of freedom-loving patriots. You're going to see everyone from Charlie Kirk, of course, uh, Turning Point's founder, Tucker Carlson, Newt Gingrich, Laura Ingram, Eric Metaxas, many more. And guess what I have for you? The next caller, I'm going to give you two VIP tickets, two VIP tickets to AmericaFest 2022. It's a $750 value. It gives you access to all the general sessions, of course, also VIP lounge access and the reserved seating area. It's a hell of a neat thing that they're doing and uh, allowing us to give away some of these uh, tickets to you. We'll be doing it over the next several weeks, but the next caller gets two VIP tickets on the house. Uh, and uh, we're delighted to do so and look forward to Seeing you there, I'll tell you what else delighted me. Just I wasn't going to do this just yet, but I'm. It, this totally delights me. We had a um, we had a caller during the break. I think Roger might have been, and said, "Don't forget that today is uh, the anniversary of the assassination of John Kennedy." And uh, sure enough, it is. I was planning to talk about it. I love that you're um, interested in culture and history that way, and what it means for us. In um, through today's lens, Uh, the most important thing I think that has been written about it, obviously, since uh, since the Warren Commission is by James Pearson, who's a historian of some note. Let me give you why I think what he wrote is important. He writes, it's been you know, it's been decades since President John Kennedy was cut down on the streets of Dallas by rifle shots fired by Lee Harvey Oswald, a self-described Marxist. Defector to the Soviet Union and admirer of Fidel Castro. The evidence for all that is overwhelming. The bullets that killed President Kennedy were fired from his rifle, which was found in the warehouse where he worked and where he was seen moments before the shooting. Witnesses on the street saw a man firing shots from a window in that building and immediately summoned police to provide the description. Forty five minutes later, a policeman stopped Oswald in another section of the city to question him about the shooting. When Oswald killed him with four shots from his pistol, he then fled to the nearby movie theater where he was captured still with the pistol. Um, Seventy plus percent of Americans, however, still believe JFK was the victim of a conspiracy. Why does the Kennedy assassination still provoke so much controversy? A large part of the answer can be found in the social and political climate of the early 1960s. Immediately after the assassination, tell me if this doesn't ring too familiar to you today. Immediately after the assassination, leading journalists and political figures insisted that the president was a victim of the quote-unquote climate of hate in Texas and across the nation, seeded by racial bigots, the KKK, think of white supremacists, white fundamentalist ministers— and anti-communist zealots. These people had been responsible for other acts of violence, so it made sense to think that the same forces were behind the attack on Kennedy. James Reston, then the chief political correspondent for the New York Times, published a front-page column on November 23, 1963. The title was, quote, Why America Weeps, Kennedy? A victim of violent streak he sought to curb in the nation. Chief Justice Earl Warren, who would later be named the head of the commission to investigate, blamed, quote unquote, bigots for the assassination. Syndicated newspaper columnist Drew Pearson, who is the probably biggest syndicated columnist in the country, most widely syndicated columnist in the country. He wrote that JFK was the victim of hate and a drive of hate. Senator Mike Mansfield in a eulogy, attributed the assassination to bigotry, hatred, and prejudice, his words. Many said that JFK had been killed because of his support for civil rights. Others, the Kennedy family included, one the same president remembered with Abraham Lincoln as a martyr to the cause of racial justice. For his part, President Lyndon Johnson saw that his job as a national leader was to supply meaning to the tragedy, And he said John Kennedy had died, but his cause was not really clear. I had to take the dead man's program and turn it into a martyr's cause. That was Lyndon Johnson. One of the things President Johnson is said to be concerned about, James Reston wrote, is the pro-communist background of Lee Harvey Oswald and that it may lead in some places to another communist hunt that will divide the country. Ironically, U.S. leaders adopted a line similar to the one pushed by the Soviet Union, which was blaming the far right for the assassination. The Soviet Union's chief spokesman said, quote, Senator Barry Goldwater and other right wingers could not escape moral responsibility for the president's death. These were the myths that grew up around the assassination and are still widely believed. The facts are. That President Kennedy was a martyr in the Cold War struggle against communism. The assassin was a communist and not a bigot or a right winger. Oswald defected from the U.S. to the Soviet Union in 1959, vowing when he did so that he would no longer live under a capitalist system. He returned to the U.S. with a Russian bride in 1962 Disappointed with life in the Soviet Union, but without giving up his Marxist beliefs or his hatred of the United States. By 1963, Oswald had transferred his political allegiance to Castro's communist regime in Cuba. In April of 1963, Oswald attempted to assassinate Edwin Walker. Who was Edwin Walker? A retired U.S. Army general. Walker was the head of the Dallas chapter of the John Birch Society and a figure then in the news because of his opposition to school integration and demand that Castro regime be overthrown. The rifle Oswald used to kill right wing to try and kill right wing Walker was the one he used to shoot Kennedy. Dallas police would not identify Oswald as Walker's assassin until after Kennedy's, but Oswald, fearful that he would be identified for the shooting, fled Dallas for New Orleans which is where he established a local chapter of Fair Play, Cuba. Castro was probably aware of the plots against him, James Pearson writes, thanks to information thought to have been provided by a Cuban double agent. But the JFK assassination was an event in the Cold was not only an event in the Cold War, but it was interpreted by America's liberal leadership as an event in the Civil Rights Crusade. It was wholly unrelated to it and it sowed endless confusion about the motives of the assassin and the meaning of the event. Look at what they did then to that awful day and tragedy. Look at what they did. They weaponized it exactly where it didn't belong. They weaponized it or tried to against the right until we all found out, holy smokes, it was actually a Marxist communist. This drove the left insane. America was never the same, and I think you can see Echoes of that kind of group libel and libel it is because it's untrue playing again today, trying to silence people based on the actions of the insane. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson show on, 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 on that point of things that were lied to about and weaponized about that just end up not being true, some of them being hoaxes, some of them being weaponized. Think about this. Kyle Becker has a list. Um, <laughs> boy, you look at this list and it's just things that we thought we knew the story to or that the left tried to wage a story on that just turned out not to be true. Russian collusion, Trump calling neo-Nazis fine people, Jesse Smollett, Bubba Wallace garage pull, the Covington kids, the Kavanaugh rape story, the Trump P-tape, the COVID lab leak was a conspiracy the- uh, theory, border agents whipping immigrants, uh, Trump saving nuclear secrets at Mar-a-Lago, the Steele dossier, Russian bounties on U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. Uh, Trump recommending drinking bleach to fight COVID, uh, Muslim travel ban, Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation, Andrew Cuomo was the best COVID leader in the country, Trump built cages for migrant kids, Trump, uh, yeah, oh, silliness, but there, I guess, part of it, overfed koi fish in Japan, Build back better will pay for itself, Trump's tax cuts benefited only the risk cloth masks prevent covid if you get if you get vaccinated you won't catch covid if you get vaccinated you won't die oh my gosh the list goes on but they're doubling down on this nonsense uh just today the surgeon general amish shah said this they these dead enders won't give it up he said this an important part of the conversation we have in the days and weeks ahead because here's what we know if folks get their updated vaccines and they get treated. They have a breakthrough infection. We can prevent essentially every covid death in America. Do You see the elision there if they get treated, he attaches that to if everyone gets their updated booster and they have a breakthrough and get treated. We can save. Sure. If I get shot and get treated in time, I, can, I mean, yes, if they get treated. This is nonsense and it's playing games. Recent COVID statistics out of Seattle revealed that 70% of recent COVID deaths were boosted. You have breakthrough deaths of the fully boosted in some states in numbers higher than all children COVID deaths throughout the rest of the United States of America. I do. Well, I guess I do. I was going to say I do not understand this impulse. I do. I do. I do understand it. It's a totalitarian control impulse and an inability to admit you were wrong. Simple inability. And that inability to admit they were wrong and their wrongness ruined this country. A lot more coming up. Don't go away. We'll be right back.